Our epistle lesson continues to be from 2 Thessalonians 1 during the season of Advent. This passage has many Advent themes and it also serves as our sermon text. So listen carefully to God's infallible word. I'm going to start in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when, his, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Your word, Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us eyes to see, to hear, and to believe the treasures, even in this section of Scripture, that you have given for us to meditate on this day. Help us, we pray. Sanctify us, we pray, by your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, I suggested to you that the biggest hurdle to prayer is the struggle that the Apostle Paul himself experienced. In Romans 8, he writes, We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with wordless groanings. Our biggest fear about praying isn't being in the presence of God, but being in the presence of God and knowing, not knowing what to say. The saints of old faced this problem, and the saints of old availed themselves to the solution. They filled up their prayers with the words, the doctrines, in the categories of Scripture. They prayed God's Word back to Him. As I said last week, the Bible has always been the substance of the prayers of God's people as well as the springboard for their prayers. Prayer is talking to God. Communion with God. Communicating with God, to God. It's, it's a child speaking to his father. Christians 
communicate with their God. That's part of what it means to be a believer, to have a relationship with God that involves words. His words to you and the scriptures and your words to him. Being a Christian means that you have a relationship with God of trust, faith, and communication. There is no doubt that that God, your loving Father, wants to hear about the things on your heart, about the things on our hearts, the things that concern us, because he really does care. He really is a loving Father, and every loving Father wants to hear the heart of his children. And yet it's equally true that effective prayers are those that line up with the things on God's heart. One of the best ways to make sure you're praying according to God's will is to pray God's word. The words you speak to God in prayer should be rooted in his words that he has spoken to you first, that he has spoken to you in the Bible. And if that's the case, and so far as that's the case, your prayers will bear much fruit. In verses 3 to 10, Paul provided what, what I called last week the framework for his prayers. We saw last week the two fundamental principles in that framework. I called them the, the warp and the woof of Paul's prayers. The, the warp in verses 3 and 4 is gratitude for God's grace. That, that's just the base of every prayer is gratitude. You, you can't come to God without gratitude. You shouldn't. They're, they're, Paul, Paul taught us there that uh, he, he showed us by example to give thanks for the grace of God at work in fellow believers, in our brethren. We should give thanks that their faith is growing, which means we need to know whether it's growing and how it's growing. We, we should give thanks that their love is increasing. And we should give thanks that they are enduring trials with steadfastness and faith. The wolf of Paul's prayer in verses 5 to 10 is confidence in God's judgment. That's the second principle in the framework. And, and in these verses, 5 to 10, Paul taught us to be confident that Jesus will return to set everything right. We should be confident that Jesus will reward believers with an eternal reward on the last day, and we should be confident that Jesus will punish his enemies with an eternal punishment on the last day. And it's in view of these things, gratitude for God's grace, confidence in God's judgment, that Paul makes two specific petitions in verse 11, our text for today. As we study this verse today, we're going to learn a couple of things. We're going to, we'll, learn to, we'll learn what God wants from his people, what he desires, what it means to be godly, to grow in maturity, to grow in grace and godliness as a Christian. At the same time, and this will be the focus, we're going to learn what we should ask for when we're praying for one another, for other Christians. We'll see, even in this one verse, Paul's priorities in prayer. And we'll be encouraged 
to compare our priorities with Paul's and to see how they match up. By God's grace, this verse will shape the priorities and the content of our prayers. So, if we're grateful for God's grace and if our eternal destiny is at the the front and center of our minds, what kinds of things will we pray for? Well, Paul makes two petitions in verse 11. First, he prays that God will make his people worthy of their calling. Second, he prays that God will fill his people with his power. In view of this, Paul writes, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So there's a, there's a challenging bit in this verse right off the bat, isn't there? What's it mean to ask God to make believers worthy, worthy of their calling? Is that even possible? Like We, we tend to think that we're, we're unworthy and we'll never be worthy. It's impossible to live lives that are worthy of our calling. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago for the sermon on Romans 8.30, these next couple of minutes will be review. Remember, there are two types of calling in Scripture. In some New Testament passages, God's calling is really no more than an invitation. For, for example, in the parable that Pastor Bobby preached on a few weeks ago, the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22, many are called, it says. Many are invited. That's what some translations actually say. Many are invited. The same word, it's, it's many are called to the banquet, but they refuse to come. Many are called, but few are chosen, it says at the end. In that verse, God's calling is not effectual. It, it, it doesn't save, in other words, because it's not designed to. It's designed to invite. But in Paul's letters, the calling of God is always referring, when, when Paul uses that language, it's always referring to the effectual call. It's always effective, in other words. Those who are called by God are also chosen by God. So in that parable, many are called, but few are chosen. So the, the called and the chosen are not the same. But in Paul, when he's using that term, the chosen and the called are exactly the same. We saw that in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And it's really, nowhere is it clearer than in that passage. That to be called by God is to be truly saved. Paul says, for those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, these he also declared righteous, justified. So in that passage, to be called by God is to be saved eternally. But Paul never imagines that we're called because we deserve it. He didn't call us because we were worthy to be called. How, how could Paul believe such a crazy thing as that, given his own testimony, his own calling? He, 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 he never forgot that he was in the midst of persecuting the church of God and, and trying to, to 
snuff it out of existence when God intervened and called Paul by his grace. He talks about this calling using the same word, call, in Galatians 1, 13 to 15. So Paul's not praying that the Thessalonians would somehow become worthy enough to be called by God or worthy enough to stay saved or worthy enough to be judged righteous on the last day by virtue of their good works alone or something like that on the basis of their good works and their fruit and their faithfulness. Rather, they've already been called by God. They've been eternally saved by grace. And now Paul's praying that they'll live up to that calling more and more. That they would live up to that calling that they have received. Paul wants these believers in Thessalonica to grow in all of the ways that please God. Paul wanted the same thing for the believers in Ephesus. He wrote to them, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Same language. Ephesians 4.1. Now, the difference here between those two passages from Paul, the difference here is that Paul isn't just exhorting the Thessalonians to live worthy lives. That's implied. He's primarily asking God to do something, asking God to make them worthy by his sanctifying grace. Because that must happen for it to happen. By God's saving grace, you, fellow believer, have been forgiven. By his free grace, you've been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. You've been declared righteous by his by His grace, you've been declared righteous in His sight. You've been given His Spirit. You've, you've tasted of eternal life. But Paul wants more for, for you. God wants more for you. Notice I didn't say from you. That, that could work. But here God wants... God wants more for you. This is a positive thing. He he wants you to be worthy of his calling because that is for your good. He wants you to become more and more worthy of the salvation that you've been freely given in your unworthiness. You weren't worthy at all. I wasn't worthy at all when we received the call. But Paul wants you to become what you once were not. And he prays to that end. He prays that we might become worthy of all that it means to be a follower of Jesus. All that it means to be a child of God. That that we might live a life that is worthy of the love that sent Jesus from heaven to the cross. For our sins. So what's this mean for our prayers? One thing that's clear is that our chief concern in prayer shouldn't be success, wealth, health, happiness, or anything else related to external circumstances, comfort. 
This is the case whether we're praying for ourselves or for others. Paul would not have us to pray that our problems would go away. Paul would not have us praying for those things at the center of our prayers. I want you to notice how Paul, how Paul's prayer here, his petitions here, are controlled by the framework, the two principles up in verses 3 to 10. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gave thanks for the signs of grace in their lives. Now in verse 11, he's praying that more signs of grace would be manifested in them. He wants more to be thankful for. In in verses 5 to 10, Paul pointed them to eternity. Now in verse 11, he's praying with eternal values in mind rather than temporal ones. He knows that one day we'll give an account for what we have done in this life, in this body, as Paul puts it elsewhere. In effect, God, God, God will ask on the last day, what did you do with your calling? What kind of life did you live in response to the salvation I bestowed on you freely? Did you begin to live up to your calling? It's a major theme in Paul's writings. Believers are to grow up into Christian maturity. It's not acceptable for Christians not to grow in their walk with Christ. We must Paul says, become what we are. We already belong to God because he adopted us in Christ by his free mercy and grace. Now we must become all that a child of God is meant to be. God has called us. Now we must live up to that calling. It's an upward calling. This means becoming increasingly holy, increasingly selfless, increasingly loving. It means growing in knowledge, in integrity, in obedience to God. It means becoming more like Jesus, who was a servant to all. He didn't come to be served. He came to look for ways to serve. Jesus was worthy enough to become the sacrificial lamb for our sins the first one to truly atone for sins. In the old covenant, uh, covenant, a sacrificial animal had to be spotless, remember, without defect. Otherwise, God wouldn't accept it. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf for our sins because Christ was spotless, without sin, completely thoroughly worthy. And when that worthy sacrifice atoned for your sins, God already had plans for more for you. Plans to make you worthy. Plans to make you like your Savior and your big brother, Jesus. God is committed to this in you. God is committed to making you worthy if you belong to him and he won't stop making you worthy until he perfects you in the next life that's where all of this culminates that's where that's the climax of this project that's when he will make you completely worthy of the calling that you received in this life
And here's where you come in. <clears throat> here's where we come in for one another. <clears throat> None of us is spiritually strong enough to become worthy of our calling on our own. That's why Paul petitions God to accomplish this work in the saints. God must do this work in your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as in you. And so you should be asking God to do it in them. The next time you're tempted to become frustrated with a brother or sister, you know, because, for whatever, because they're not living worthy of the calling they receive, for, for whatever reason. It could be major, it could be minor. Ask yourself, when was the last time I prayed that God would make this person worthy of their calling? When you're tempted to be disappointed or irritated by the ungodly or unthoughtful behavior of someone, maybe they're, they, they aren't dependable, maybe they are mean, maybe they have a, a blind spot that just irritates you. When, when, you're, when you're tempted to be disappointed or, or irritated with, with the behavior of a child or a, or a sibling or your spouse or a fellow, your fellow church members or your leadership or, or the entire congregation, you know, we're, we're not doing what we ought to do. But before you allow yourself to become angry or judgmental or resentful, First, repent of your prayerlessness for those people and then ask God to make them worthy of the calling they've received. The people of God need your prayers for them. I need your prayers. You need my prayers. We all need all of our prayers. So let's begin praying for one another's worthiness. When was the last time you asked God to make the members of your family and your household worthy of their calling? How often do you pray this for your church, for your children, for your grandchildren? Let's make sure we spend at least as much of our energy petitioning God for, for worthiness as we spend petitioning him for jobs and safety and health. Above and before all these other petitions, let's pray for lives that are worthy of what it means to be a Christian, a child of God. Will you do that? Will you pray for me and for the rest of the body in this way? Second, Paul prays that God will fill his people with his power so that two twin things Will happen. One, so that they may follow through on their resolve to do good. And two, so that they may follow through on their work of faith. And these are really two ways of saying basically the same thing from a couple different perspectives. I mean, we're in the second half of verse 11 now, but let me read the whole verse again. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. In another place, in one of my favorite verses, Paul says that it's God who works in you so that you will and do according 
to his good purpose. Philippians 2, verse 13. The emphasis there, though, is on God's good purpose, which is fundamental. But here in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul prays that God might empower us to do our good purposes. Did you see that? Good purposes that are prompted by our faith, our God-given faith. This is astounding. Let's not miss it. Paul assumes that God's people have been so transformed by the gospel and their conversion to Christ that they now have a new set of priorities, goals, plans, purposes, new resolutions, aims in life. What's, what's Paul have in mind here? What are some examples of, of a Christian's resolve to do good? Well, the, the, the list is really endless. It, it may be the resolve to talk to an unbeliever at work or in your neighborhood about Christ, or perhaps the resolve to pour oneself out physically or emotionally or financially for a church member or a family member who needs love or friendship or mentorship or just help. It, it may be the resolve of a child to stop bickering and arguing so much with his brothers and sisters and to be a blessing to his God and his parents by dwelling in unity with his siblings. It may be a Christian man's resolve to stop exasperating his wife or his children and instead to love them with the tenderness of God the Father, with the compassion of Jesus, with selflessness and sacrifice. When a person becomes a child of God, they begin thinking and planning along different lines. Their goals change. Their ambitions become less self-centered and more God-centered and others-centered. Now, of course, no Christian can do everything. No one should try to resolve to do every good thing that there is to do. We can't. We're finite creatures. And that's not what God calls any one person to do, any one Christian to do. However, every believer can and should have some resolves for good, resolves to do good, resolutions to do good. When the Spirit saves someone, He also works into that person's heart God-honoring intentions, the desire to do good, to use Paul's language, for good. We can't do everything, but we, we can all do something. And we are called to do something or some things. And we can always be looking for the next thing to do. The next thing that God has called us to do. What resolve for good does God want to fulfill in you today, this week, the rest of this year? It's true that every plan, every goal, every resolve for good must be fulfilled by God. Otherwise, it, it won't ever come to fruition. But it's equally true that Paul expects Christians to develop these good resolutions, these godly goals. So it's God's work 
But it's our responsibility too. Like that passage from Philippians 2 says, it's God. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, as the next verse says, that it's God who works in us that faithfulness. So God expects, not just Paul, God expects his children to generate God-honoring plans and purposes and visions. Paul presupposes, as he writes, verse 11, that a Christian at any given moment will have more than one resolve to do good. He says every resolve, not, not the only one that you have, but all of them. He, he assumes that believers will, will develop spiritually-minded purposes. And then, on the basis of this assumption, he petitions God to take these goals and purposes, these, these holy ambitions in our hearts, and work them out so that they come to fruition, so that they reach fulfillment by God's grace. Every Christian needs people praying that his or her good intentions might be brought to completion. We can have all kinds of wonderful aims and ideas about what we should do, but unless God works in us and through us, unless God empowers our good purposes, we won't be able to produce any lasting fruit. If it's in the flesh and not in the power of God, it will produce no good thing. Ultimately, apart from God's power to bring a good thing to completion, our every resolve for good is powerless. And that's why, that's why we pray. That's, that's what we're to pray for. We are to petition God, pleading with him to fulfill in his people, in one another, every resolve to do good. We pray that God will fill his people with his power so that they may follow through on their resolve to do good and follow through on their work of faith. We could translate that last part, that God may fulfill every act prompted by your faith. That's actually one translation. A little bit of a paraphrase, but a good, it gets at the meaning. That God may fulfill every act prompted by your faith flowing out of your faith. And, and this is another astonishing statement, another perspective on the same reality. Paul presupposes that the saving faith of believers will prompt or produce kingdom work, work that pleases God, work that God uses. Without faith, Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God. But what's that imply? This, that means that with faith, our work of faith does please God. The underlying principle in all of this is that apart from a, a faith-filled reliance on the power of God, no Christian will be able to follow through on any resolve to do good or on any work of faith unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those, the, the, the watchman stays awake in vain, Psalm 127. In the same way, unless the Lord fulfills our good, faith-prompted purposes, they will remain fruitless. They will either become empty dreams 
or just hectic activity with, with no power or life because they are not powered by God. What are your goals and purposes? What, what should you be attempting for the sake of Christ? What, what are your resolves for good that God has laid on your heart? Whatever they are, if, if, if we want them to, to come to fruition, to completion, we need God's grace and power behind them. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. The brothers and sisters sitting next to you and around you in this sanctuary can't do it on their own. We're all dependent on the power of God to fulfill in us what we cannot fulfill in ourselves. So God has given us sanctified goals, godly purposes, holy resolutions. We all want to do every work of faith that God has called us to do. But we'll be unable to follow through on our noble intentions if God doesn't bring them to fulfillment. And this means, here's here's the application. This means that one of the most important ways that you can love and serve and edify and minister to one another is by going to the throne of grace and asking God to give to your brothers and sisters what they cannot give themselves. The most important thing you can do for me this week is to petition our Father to make me worthy of my calling as a Christian and to fill me with His power so that I am able to follow through on every resolve to do good and every work of faith. I need that from you. So can we all commit to praying this prayer from verse 11? Can we, can we commit to it this week? Here's my challenge to all of us. So what I'm asking, this is what I'm asking us to do as a, as a congregation. Let's all pray through the directory this week with our Bibles open to this verse. Just think of the power that would be unleashed in our congregation if every member offered up these two petitions from verse 11 for every other member during the course of of this week. Are you willing to do that? I am. I will. I hope you'll join me. Let's do it together. And what I'm talking about is very simple. It it, it shouldn't be intimidating. I know it might be, but it'll just go something like this. God, please make Pastor Jeremy worthy of his calling. Fulfill in him every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power. In Christ's name, amen. If, 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 if you want, you can, you can add other things, your own thoughts. You, you can use this verse as a springboard for other prayers. It might be good to pray that God would give me more resolves for good, that God's spirit might produce in me more good purposes, more holy intentions, more godly plans to put my faith into action. But, but you can just keep it simple. And stick with the substance of the verse. 
God, please make James or Megan or Oliver or Sophia worthy of his or her calling. Fulfill in him or her every resolve for good and bring every work of faith to completion by your power. In the name of Jesus, amen. So will you join me this week in praying through the directory? Let's pray. Oh God, please make all the members of this congregation, all the members of Christ the King Church, worthy of our calling. Fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.